0: This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voices of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voices of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash V-O-S-D. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash V-O-S-D. Andrea Lopez viafanya is out
1: this week. She's feeling great. She's not sounding very great, though. Coming up on this. This is all. This is all bad. Damn it! Got to do this again. Ready? Three, mm-hmm. two. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 KOGO. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor in Chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined as always by reporter Jacob McQuinney. What's up, Jacob?
2: Um, I'm doing good. You sound much more enthused on this take. <laughs> okay,
1: thanks. Also in the house, senior investigative reporter, who's not a senior yet. You're not, You're just a you're, you're just regular the, a senior investigative reporter. <laughs> you're more senior than some others. <laughs> yes, but not senior. Will Huntsbury, how are you? Good. Andrea Lopez Villafaña, otherwise known as Lopez, is out this week. Coming up on the show, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria is proposing a change to the city's landmark Complete Communities Housing Plan. It allowed developers to build much larger projects if they included affordable housing. Now they could build that affordable housing, at least if this passes, in poorer communities rather than on site. We'll talk about that and explain what's going on. And we commissioned our old pal, Andrew Donahue, used to be the co-host on this very show, to do a dive into what's happened at the Union Tribune since L.A. billionaire Patrick Soon-Shin betrayed us, sold the paper to the most feared hedge fund in the American newspaper world. Donahue's going to call in and talk about the story that everyone's talking about this week. It's going to be a good show. Stay with us. Can't let the week go by without discussing this incredible clip from KUSI News. Shout out to Ken Stone from Times of San Diego who saw this and posted it for all our delight. So this is one of the anchors at KUSI, uh, Lindsay Fucano. She had to uh, she had to do the weather, and um, and they (laughs)
2: Lindsay
1: and 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 this is uh, this is you know we're all dealing with the dry air. You were talking about your your face.
2: Yeah, yeah. My My nosebleeds have been not very nice. And, and, I, and I don't do anything illicit that crusty. would cause like,
1: there's just It's just gasping Hot, for
2: dry winds. Some of you may have heard of
1: them. Sometimes. Well, Lindsay- <laughs> Uh, was dealing with them on this on the weather forecast here
3: all right so the big story that we are looking at we are feeling this warm up here in san diego and it is all due thanks in part to the santa ana winds and uh if if uh, I didn't know what they were. Rafer had to look it up as well. But the, this is when actually the the winds they move offshore and they the descending air. It, it's from the desert, so it heats up the the hot and and windy conditions that we've been experiencing. Wow!
2: So so when I was at when I was at City College, I I did a semester of the TV news program there. It was. Not by any fault of city college people but it was a terrible experience because i've i every single time I would go on, I would sweat profusely uh-huh. and just be like nervous the whole night before this sounds terrifying <laughs> <laughs> having to be having to be doing the the weather i, I
1: admire the vulnerability like right. you, you come across a concept like the Santa and we' like. <laughs> man we had to google, google that. the
2: hot air the desert this does just, feel just like blowing. a this does feel like a TV journalist like version of like the nightmare of showing up to school with like just in your underwear you know
1: yeah. <laughs> so I know she's probably mortified and I don't want to pile on but I gotta do I gotta deal with it that uh the, the, also, that part. Well, it's like the desert, so it's warm. It's just like it's the worst advertisement
3: for like the value of local news yeah. as well, right? Like we just sit around googling stuff. You all already knew
2: exactly what it was. I mean, Nothing. also maybe it's a good advertisement for other local news. <laughs> well, yes,
3: <laughs> we know what the Santa Ana's are, guys.
1: The graf- the graphic guy knew, or the graphic lady knew. What they were, they got the arrows flowing.
3: Surely the graphics people had <laughs> and seen them before. They, and they must have been
1: like, Draft the Santa Ana. There's nothing, there's no core concept in local climatology in San Diego. Nothing more important than the Santana, San not the sun. Not the tides, not, not the, the Colorado River, not the river.
2: <laughs> that sounds like a, the, a little bit of of, of exaggeration. No here, Scott. way!
1: <laughs> what concept in local weather is more important than the Santa Ana wind? It's the only interesting thing about the place. There's no more interesting weather that occurs here than the Santa Ana wind. Uh, even the hurricane—it came every one—it comes every 30 years. They're like. Well, it rained. It just rained.
2: (laughs) So, okay. So in her defense, do we know how long she's been here?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So she grew up in Southern California.
3: Okay, guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty.
2: guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Misdemeanor or felony? I I, I mean, I think this is probably a meteorological felon. I think Uh, so. Just like a person? No, no. No, She's not
1: a a meteorologist. They're like, hey, you got to do the weather tonight. And she was probably like, what? <laughs> <laughs>
3: and she, this is her worst nightmare yeah. of what would happen. This is definitely And it happened. Insane. I do feel bad for so, her. I, yes. I,
1: let's just make sure. Let's just be clear. We respect and value her as a professional in town. We're not piling on it's just an interesting
3: thing. It could happen to any of us, you know. It's it's like when a reporter first learns about the property tax law bill from the 70s, you know. You
2: just, it blows your mind. Yeah. Sure, but I don't know that the property tax law makes, like, your face dry every single year.
1: Yeah, or cause the... the- the fires. <laughs> the, only, the only unique scary thing we have to do. Every other weather is just like, do I need a coat in the morning yeah, or my warm shirt? <laughs> That's
2: the entirety. Of, That's the question 365. Yeah. You know? <laughs>
1: so, um, can I use this opportunity to explain something? Uh,
2: Dude, give us some I, news I here. I don't think Come we up. have any choice, right? This is this, like a. It's, it's,
1: yeah, it's, it's my platform. It's <laughs> fine. Everybody thinks that the Santa Ana winds are warm because they come from the desert. There's like this heating factory, and it pumps over the, the air. <laughs> Sounds right. It's not true. So actually, the Santa Ana winds come from Utah, like the like m- like some Mormons.
2: Yeah. The way you started that, you're just so you, listeners can understand. You started to point to me, and they said the Santa Ana winds come from you, and you're pointing to me, and I'm like, what the? F- no, what did U- I do? Utah. <laughs> I get it now, but for a second there, I was very concerned. It gets cold
1: in Utah. And what happens is that air comes rushing down and then it goes over the mountains as cold air. So at the top of the mountains, when the Santa Ana winds come, they're like freezing. It's super cold, but it goes so fast down the mountain that it heats up and it becomes like this hot <clears throat> wind that comes past it. So everybody, again, it's wow. not like some factory of hot air blowing on Interesting. us. Interesting. It's the, the
2: speed it's the that speed. creates the heat. Yeah. Wow. It's wild. So much of of the way winds work just sounds like a like a cartoon from the '50s. I, I'm never going to be able to understand it fully.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, Esty yeah, taught me that. I went to the emergency, you know, place where they shut off the power. If if, uh-huh. if they have this entire system set up, this is very very. Do they just like have NASA, like a
2: big red button? It's like this NASA
1: like like lab, you know, screens and everything. And the entire purpose of it is when to push the button to turn off <laughs> the power. And it's all. I'm glad like, they take that seriously. Absolutely, It's like the
2: Wiley Coyote Command Center. So
1: the, anyway, that's how Santa Ana winds work. And I, I, you know, if they need me to sub, <laughs> yeah, when you the, would have nailed it, man. <laughs> I've, been, I've been like, hey, take a second.
2: <laughs> I don't know, Scott. Do you know what to do with your hands when you're up there?
1: Uh, I I'm pretty good with my hands. Okay, I don't that's... know if you know this. I was huge on TV for a while. <laughs> Yeah, but we're,
3: you, Scott were you, had a segment, a weekly segment.
1: segment. Okay, we want to also cover a couple of updates. First up, the Cardenas siblings. Wow. Wow. <laughs> All right. So Andrea Cardenas is the is city councilwoman in Chula Vista. We've had her on this podcast before, live podcast in Chula Vista. Uh, and we actually asked her. Uh, some tough questions in that conversation about her, how she's a, a, a city councilwoman while also being a political consultant that represents, you know, like some of these cannabis places, right? That are trying to get like regulations and laws from the city, right? Yeah, it's su- a, it,
2: super above board stuff, right? It's
1: it's a tough balance. <laughs> okay. And as Turns she pointed out, out uh, <laughs> okay, okay, Andrea, uh, and then her brother is Jesus Cardenas, who used to be the chief of staff for Stephen Whitburn, city councilman at the city of San Diego and now the chair of MTS. And after he became the chair of MTS because of that crazy story about the previous chair that we don't need to get into, <laughs> uh, he, uh, his chief of staff, Jesus Cardenas, had to quit because it was discovered that that political consulting firm that he and his sister run was collecting fees Improperly, because they were not allowed to. They were suspended. Anyway, a lot of balancing of this private job and company and the public responsibility. Well, this week, District Attorney Summer Steffen charged Jesus Cardenas and Andrea Cardenas with felony counts uh, about money laundering, fraudulent stuff, other fraudulent stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was a list, a long list.
2: It was a baker's dozen of, of of offenses.
1: All not in regard to some of these conflicts we've explored, but in regard to the political consulting firm that they run, she says that they applied for one of the paycheck protection plan PPP loans. PPP loans that the government provided during COVID. The basic deal with the loan was if you have employees and you keep them on your payroll during COVID, then the government would give you this loan. You don't have to pay it back. You just get the money. Full disclosure, voice, San Diego guy, everybody got... Your employer didn't. You you, you became unemployed, I
2: I became unemployed twice over, yeah. Okay.
1: (laughs) Sorry. It is alleged that the Cardenas and their firm, Grassroots Resources... Got one of these PPP loans, claimed 34 employees, but the employees, it turns out, were actually employees of a cannabis distributor, and cannabis is illegal still on the federal government's terms. Right. And so, you know, they're not qualified. No
3: PPP loans to allowed get the for PPP them. loan, mm-hmm.
1: and also they don't have 34 employees for this firm. And it's a political consulting firm. There was questions about whether that would make them eligible for this, and so the DA said they lied about all these things. They laundered money in the process, and therefore they're they're uh, they're going to be charged now with these felonies. So wow. it's a huge story in local politics. Uh, and it, and
2: it's this is no small thing. Doesn't uh, Andrea face like? nearly six years in prison if she's convicted of all of this. Yes. There's something like four.
1: Yeah. They both face some pretty serious time. Uh, there, you know, obviously there's going to be all kinds of discovery and all kinds of time for deals or pleas or different things to happen. Innocent till proven guilty, all of those things. So, uh, but it's a huge story in local politics. I think there'll be pressure on her to resign. There'll be pressure on other, uh, things to happen. We'll see how that all carries out. So, big uh story and update we'll follow it from uh the district attorney on that and
2: andrea's up for re-election <laughs> yes right? could she pull like a eugene Debs and run from prison
1: yeah
3: they may try to extract from her a promise never to run for that's, office again that's one thing they or to resign work on. yeah right
1: they often that is part of the deals often with yeah. these cases so uh we shall see.
3: Should we say La Prensa broke the original story about the
1: PPP loan? That's right. The La Prensa had a long story, and and uh, the second half of it was in February about how odd the PPP loan was, how some of the uh, questionable claims they made in it. So.
3: But the publisher does the publisher have friction with Jesus Cardenas?
1: Uh, Art Castaneras has some history with with uh, with Cardenas. Uh, yeah, the interesting dynamic. There's a lot, a lot of a lot of beefs around San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's listed among them. Can I do this one last update? Palmar <coughs> Health. So uh, Tiggis has been on this story. This is fascinating. It's so wild, this one. She's been dogging this agency for a while for their finance and other things, like doing a great job holding them accountable. But one day she goes onto the website and it has this big interstitial that comes up and says, you must sign this terms of service before you, agree, before you can go onto the website. And she looks through the terms and they're like, you can't copy anything you can't reproduce anything you can't post anything from this site uh without written consent from palomar health palomar health is a public government agency like you you can't go to the city of san diego and have the city of san diego say you can't take any of this stuff. <laughs> that's our stuff we absolutely <laughs> these, these, can these take public it. public meeting agendas you cannot republish uh, yeah, it. <laughs> I, we can take it absolutely <laughs> So she, uh, in the process of sort of examining this, she talked to these lawyers, and they're like, yeah, that's crazy that that would be that. <laughs> and she talked to one of the board members, Lori Edwards Tate, and she said, uh, yeah, this seems a little bit questionable. A bit much. Yeah, and, and the Palomar Health sent this director uh, a threat and said that, uh, and scheduled on their meeting that they were going to, a uh, vote to censor her for speaking to Tiggs Lane,
3: potentially even a vote of no confidence yes. or something.
2: Like, so is that something- for
3: saying to Tiggs Lane that this policy is weird? An elected official—they're elected, right? Yeah. An elected official wanted to speak out about a policy of their board, and their board was like, "You can't do that."
2: So <laughs> technically, by their policy, would we have been breaking it if we reported that on their board meeting? they they listed that they were going to yeah, do a vote they, of no confidence they ended up changing
1: the terms yeah but yes exactly like we it, you take like the agenda like oh he didn't get us consent yeah to post the agenda Who are of these when people? you're going to when we're going to vote no confidence for the comment about the consent that we didn't give for this terms of service
2: it, it's pre- it's pretty baller to like be hit with some you know critical coverage and then just be like no 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 you can't look at any of this. You can't talk about any of this. Our whole website is off limits. <laughs> <laughs> right. I kind of have to respect that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, anyway, the uh, development this week is that uh, Lori Edwards Tate, that director, right. is suing Palmar Health for what she says is now an infringement on her First Amendment rights to say things to people.
3: I'm going to say as she should. I'm going to go ahead and say as she should. Yeah.
1: they're They're mad. You might might understand. They said, quote, Palomar Health is disappointed Director Edwards Tate chose to file a baseless lawsuit grounded in her misunderstanding of Palomar Health's media policy. While all directors have a right to speak to the public, Palomar Health encourages board members to notify someone on the executive leadership team when they intend to speak to the media, ensuring that information is accurate. Instead, Director Edwards Tate chose to forego verification. (laughs)
2: Have you been practicing that Palomar Health voice? And as a result,
1: disseminated false and misleading information. Of course, they never say, and they never have said what is inaccurate. And every time they they accuse tickets of writing something, inaccurate, they're like, you ask them, like, what? What was wrong? And they're like, it just was wrong. They
3: just, they seem to, I don't know if they all went to PR school or what, but they seem to think they have some fundamental constitutional right to check people's talking points before they say them. And they just really read the Constitution wrong.
1: (laughs) Well, hopefully she schools them. (laughs) All right, we're joined on the line by none other than my former co-host on this show. Weird world. The first co-host of the Voice San Diego podcast, Andrew Donahue. What's up, dude?
4: Hey man, it's good to be back. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to know you didn't ruin the show. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's much better. Actually, I, imagine, a... I imagine it's way better. <laughs> I know. I, I never actually, I haven't listened to it. So was it just know. you two
1: like sitting in a closet like? No, <laughs> we would go to Kogo. We would drive, yeah. and we would plan the show on the way there. <laughs> nice. Now we have like a whole thing we do, and we have script and all this stuff. But back then, it was just like. Hey, what should we talk about?
2: There's two
4: two two dudes in an old Volvo coming up with an agenda. Yeah. yeah. I, age. I can still smell that Volvo. Uh,
1: uh, <laughs> that was a good car. Um, well, it was a, like a throwback. You had a byline and voice, and also you wore a Scooby costume for Halloween. Flashback to 20 years ago before the Cedar Fire, we wore, uh, he and I dressed, he was... Uh,
2: um, oh, you just told this story of the other day.
1: Yeah, he was Shaggy and I was Scooby. And uh, and now he's got a Scooby costume this week and he's got a byline in Voice of San Diego. It's wow. Like the uh, time is a flat circle. <laughs> <laughs>
4: this was my 20-year my life reunion yeah. uh, today or this week, yeah.
1: All right, so you dug in to the Union Tribune and what happened with the sale. I, I think one of the biggest sort of takeaways of your story and what we've learned since then is that this hedge fund bought the Union Tribune and we're starting to understand better that, ironically, as it sort of vulture, extracts money away from the paper, it it may actually keep the physical paper around longer than if... The UT had been left in the in the caretaking sort of world of this billionaire from LA and the former editor and publisher Jeff Light. Can you help us understand what's going on there?
4: Yeah, and I think that's sort of the key, one of the key takeaways, um, and one of the things that I uh, sort of came came away from that was I was talking to somebody, and the way that they described it like this was, if you are planning, if you're a, if you are a newspaper planning for the future you are doing a, a plan, uh, a digital transformation plan that is built around preserving the jobs of journalists. Because if you're doing a digital transformation plan, you have to make a product that's good enough for people to pay online. And that's quite a high hurdle. So that if you're running a paper like this and trying to transition to digital, you got to protect reporter jobs and cut everywhere else, which is kind of why the Union Tribune was, was uh, experimenting with these days without prints, because that's a way that they could cut costs.
1: Yeah. Days without prints. And then also like more paywalls on the site, like trying to trigger people to buy digital subscription.
4: Yeah. And you have to, again, that, that has to be a focus on quality to get people to do that online. So Alden comes in, Alden doesn't plan for the future. Alden, you know, basically, uh, locks in looking for cash, uh, flow. It takes that cash flow. And all it wants to do basically is create is continue to deliver as many newspapers to the doorsteps of as many people in San Diego, basically until that just doesn't work anymore. And then they sell it off for parts, or maybe they've already sold it off for parts and it just closes or it gets sold again in some sort of shell. But the biggest takeaway so that that's the biggest takeaway is they are, they are, they are committed to preserving the print product, which means you'll do anything you can and you'll cut anywhere you can to preserve a newspaper landing on people's door, and that means when you they came in and they've cut what employees estimate to be 30% of the staff um, already, and then you preserve print. So, very simply, if you were if you're somebody in San Diego who's concerned, like. Oh, I really like my print newspaper. Well, you're still going to get it, but it's not going to. It may not have much inside of it, and it's not going to have nearly the quality that that it may have before. And again, to to drive that home, thirty at least thirty percent is what employees are guessing. They haven't gotten a firm figure, and if that's the case, the newspaper is now about eighty uh, percent or more smaller than it used to be. And I mean by newsroom staff. So you used to have up to four hundred. Uh, people working in a newsroom that now you have somewhere around 75 and you know you, you know who knows where it keeps going from there
3: well you know i think that's what i didn't understand what you teased out in this story andy was that everybody's been going around calling alden strip miners and i didn't really understand how that worked because all the papers they've bought are still open, you know, and you keep hearing people say, Alden's going to sell it for parts. Alden's going to sell it for parts. And I think finally, I understand what that means, which is that they're going to print the paper, which is cash to them as long as they possibly can. And they're going to keep cutting jobs until, and, and the next stage is just disappearance potentially, instead of there being a transition plan.
4: Yeah, and I think what we—it's harder to know—it's you know—it's harder to know like exactly when that runs out. You know, when does the when do those lines in the chart converge where there's not enough subscribers to bring in even any cash flow? And then what do they do? Like we haven't gotten there yet, and people have been predicting that, and they thought it was going to happen before. And I talked to somebody who said, you know, they thought maybe a couple years ago it was about three years. They think the pandemic kind of changed that a little bit because there was a big boost in like digital subscriptions. Just in newspapers in general, um, and so I think the yeah the question is is like how long is that runway right? But I think what we do know is you know you have an owner, even you know even like plenty of these other corporate owners that you've had in the past, um, they uh, they at least had some commitment or like history or investment in journalism. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a private equity firm, you go in, you try to cut costs, make it a solvent business and then quickly sell it again to somebody else who's interested in running a newspaper. What, what it appears to be with, with these guys is no real interest in journalism. And just an interest in the in the you know nice fat profit margin they could build out of a newspaper until that newspaper bleeds dry. You know, there's no like let's make sure that this is some sort of um, ongoing you know uh, institution in the community. Now, like there are there plenty of there's still hardworking reporters and editors and people there who are trying to make it work and are committed, but the institution itself is not committed to San Diego and not necessarily committed to
1: journalism. You know? I think uh, just to drive home what we're talking about here, there's one idea of keeping journalism going and getting people to pay for it differently. And then the other, and and just cutting all costs, including the print paper as much as possible to keep it going. Uh, and then the, the alternate being uh, cutting the journalism as much as possible so, you can keep so, th- the money. so that you can keep the products alive as long as possible and and extract as much from that as as possible. I think one of the really interesting parts of the story you had a bunch of comments from people who you you protected their names just because of what was pretty clearly a hostility from Alden and the the new owners to to the reporters and others talking about what was happening. And one of them was saying like look, this this is hard and we're having trouble but we don't I don't really blame these guys. These guys have been very clear about what they want. That their hostility Seems to be about the previous owner, Patrick Soon Shin.
4: Absolutely. I mean, they're like, you know, they're, they're, everybody's like, "Look, we know what these guys are about, and this is what they're doing, and they don't agree with it." But the the you know, Patrick came in. Um, you know, he sort of got the Union Tribune as you know, you can either say as a throw-in or as something he had to accept. Uh, As part of buying, you know, buying the LA times seems like it's the ladder now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big NBA fan and you you have a lot of trades recently where there's somebody with a terrible contract who gets thrown in. It's like, yeah, if you want this good player, you got to have the the guy who's making 30 million (laughs) who barely plays anymore. And um, it feels like, um, you know, it doesn't feel like he was ever really invested in San Diego, but he, he took, he took in the paper as part of wanting his hometown paper which is the LA, you know, the LA times. And, you know, he came down gave one speech, kind of, kind of an off putting speech for the people there. But then he went back to LA and just kind of left the paper alone. in a lot of ways that was sort of like the boom, you know, the boom years there, they were making money. um, They were starting to carve out this digital plan for the future. And it felt like in a lot of ways, a lot of ways to people there that it had really stabilized, you know, the newspapers were in a free fall and they stabilized. And that's when like, you, you know, you start to see more financial, the financial future being around the, the subscriptions. Um, but, uh, and, you know, and, and Patrick, uh, from what I've been told sort of really projects himself as a savior, right? Like he's a guy who is trying to cure cancer. You know, he tried to create a COVID vaccine and he really did position himself as somebody who was coming in to save local news. Um, and so, uh, that's why it was particular. It felt like a particular betrayal to the people there. And, you know, f- to them, the larger community of San Diego for him in, you know, out of absolutely nowhere um, to turn around and sell the paper and not just sell the paper, but turn it in to, you know, to sell it to the one company that you could pretty much guarantee was not going to be invested in, in San Diego or in, in local journalism. That I think that, is the thing that everybody's really mad at, and you know, there had been various attempts to try to to turn the newspaper into a nonprofit at different times, and that was one of the questions that kept coming up um, from people was sort of, you know, why didn't if if he had to sell, why did he have to sell so quickly and suddenly, and why couldn't he have tried to you know go back and try to make one of these nonprofit um, sort of uh, negotiations work, you know? And he is a billionaire. Right. So it's hard to I mean, I don't know his cash flow or his, you know, finances, but it's it's kind of hard to believe that if the paper was making money, that there was some sort of uh, that he like financially had to get get out of there uh, urgently unless, you know, again, unless there's some some other thing that I have I have no idea about.
2: Well, that was that was a question that I had. Right. I mean, by all accounts, it seems like the UT was making money and wasn't this huge, massive dead weight. On on Patrick uh, Soon Shin, but as you as you alluded to it just now, and in the story, there were other options. Can you kind of explore a little bit of what what those were, and kind of expand on that?
4: Yeah, I mean, in the past, so under the under, I guess it would have been a few owners ago, Doug Manchester, there were some pretty serious negotiations with Nayland Burnham, uh, the local philanthropist, who was really you know intent on. you know, really believed in the in the actual Union Tribune, the newspaper, as being like the center of this information and news hub. And he really wanted; he thought it was a community service, and it should be sort of treated that way. So he worked with a group of like a bunch of financial heavyweights in town to come up with a plan to uh, try to convert the Union Tribune, basically pay Doug Manchester to buy it from him, and then convert it to a nonprofit organization. Now that was re- what is going to require. Manchester to give them uh, the newspaper at a discount, which I don't know Manchester at all, but from what I've heard of him, the idea that he was just give the newspaper away at a discount, uh, I think, you know, obviously it would, was probably a long shot to begin with. Um, but they really tried. And from what I've been told, it was a, you know, they spent like a year or so really digging in. There's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of tax issues with converting something from a for profit to a non profit. And, you know, you know, there's a lot of, fundraising that was going to go into it. Now, from, from what I was told, the, the, you know, they went to a few of the big, you know, um, usual suspects for fundraising and they didn't, nobody bought, but I'm told that, you know, Burnham did still really think that he could, that he could gather the cash necessary. Uh, Manchester ended up taking a deal to sell it for 85 million to the Tribune company. So those, that, that whole project was kind of squashed by that. But fast forward a couple more years, you know, um, Patrick has a, uh, a, um, I think he has like some ties with Arizona State University and also Arizona State's journalism school has a real like teaching hospital model where they like, they really take their students and put them into real world uh, situations. So they're actually reporting stories and, you know, working in newsrooms and stuff. So apparently there was some pretty, uh, you know, there were some negotiations about could you basically... Convert the union Tribune to a nonprofit, and then have the Arizona State um, University use it as a teaching hospital. And from what I've been told, that like the San Diego Foundation would have been like some sort of like the financial steward of it or something like that. But um, again, that got very complicated. um, From what I heard on both sides of it, there were hangups, and uh, and didn't end up uh, coming to fruition. But I don't know. I don't know if that means that you could never have done it. But I do think, like now that you have Alden there, the chances of it happening are probably pretty low.
1: Well, that's—I think—that's my my biggest question that still remains about this. Is you—you talked about like why did he actually sell it? Because if you think about the story, what's going on? The the Jeff Light, the leader of it, is in the middle of this multi-year plan to to you know bridge the gap into the digital future. He's not—they're not losing money by all accounts. There's nothing emergency there's no emergency at the moment. Uh and so for him to sell right away just felt felt like this intense betrayal. And the only thing I can conclude is that he wasn't out there on the market at all. I I suspect that Alden went to him and yeah. offered something that their whole family is like, "Well, I can't you, there's no there's no way for us to say that this is not something we can take, right? It's like that they have to." And Which is the whole problem not have though to, but,
3: with like you know the best model we've seen to save journalism in the past decade is billionaire largess, and like billionaire largesse leaves just as quickly as it comes you know yeah. it's not it is not gonna fix the model it might give us runway sometimes when it comes into play but like like we've seen I think you're right it seems like the most likely scenario is Alden approached them it was a number they felt like was too good to be true and like turns out all that talk about protecting the ut was hot air whether he meant it to be or not
2: right well and to be fair there wasn't all that much talk about protecting the ut there was like one speech and then just complete (laughs) radio silence for years right
4: yeah i mean the other i don't know any i mean i don't have any reporting that would you know uh that, that would support or contradict what you're talking about scott i mean i don't know i would say that um he never was committed here, you know? So the fact that ultimately he sold isn't very surprising. You know, Uh, I think the fact that it was such a, it was so sudden. I mean, literally in the story, you know, in the story, like people are just working on a Monday and then all of a sudden, like they get an email and then the dude from Alden is just walking around and asking them what they do (laughs) in, you know, in the office, like, you know, in previous sales, like these were things that had, you know, they, you knew they were on the market and everything. I think, you know a couple. so again i think he uh, i think he was never committed to san diego and, you know finance is changed too uh, we do know that like a lot of things that have bedeviled like the previous owners of the union tribune and previous efforts to try to make it into a nonprofit is the pension debt uh so you know it may have been profitable now maybe it wasn't going to be profitable maybe they had projections it wasn't going to be profitable in the future um and you know they did have to make cuts at the la times and uh and maybe i don't know this is again speculation maybe he didn't want to you know be the owner of a place that was going to have to go do more cuts i don't know i mean you know they were also out there jeff light was out there in a Q and A on their own site, talking about how profitable they were, and they were profitable in the right way. So, I guess, Scott, to your theory, if if Alden guy got a Google alert for profitable newspapers, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> let's go. You know, that was the, the 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 speed with which everything happened was one of the more more interesting, I think, pieces of this story, and, and just how surreal kind of the. The UFO of Alden guys coming in and, and dropping into into the UT and walking around like a like an AI sort of model. I mean, could you kind of walk us through what it what it felt like for for the UT staff once this sale did go public and and, and how, you know, five minutes later, there's like an Alden dude who who, who seems like he's artificial intelligence walking around?
4: Yeah, it's like the call is coming from inside the house, uh, kind of thing. (laughs) Like he was just there. Yeah, I mean it was. I think it was. It was very disturbing, honestly, for people. And um, you know, uh, from what I've been told, it's you know they are all their you know the staff meetings are this guy Ron Haas uh, who uh, you know is delivering them basically like he's just reading from a script. They're not taking questions from people live. Um, they are, uh, you know, if there is questions, you have to turn them into an email beforehand and, you know, they're being threatened too. they're saying like, they, you know, they're being told repeatedly, if any of this information leaks, we're not going to be giving you more information, which, uh, you know, obviously cuts people off from wanting to talk and made people very scared in, in talking to me for the story but also it's kind of weird because they're not actually giving them any information anyways. So I wonder what the real, like, what's the threat? Like they're saying, like, we're not getting any plans for the future. We're not being told much anyways. Um, but it is, um, you know, it, it does seem quite robotic to be honest. You know, I think that's the way a lot of people described it in the sense that like they're, you know, they cut right away, cut, you know, parental leave, for example. Um, uh, they cut the 401k match. They, you know, there's, people have been told there's no, there's not going to be raises. There's not like any avenue for pay increases or merit raises or anything like that. And so, you know, we all know working in, you know, working in newspapers or in the news business is not often not a pretty picture, um, and isn't the most lucrative endeavor, but it does feel like, you know, both there's, there's, there's like just a certain, uh, there's just a certain playbook that they follow in this, and it doesn't seem to be very concerned about retaining talent, you know, yeah. uh, or attracting talent or ensuring that people are happy in the workplace. As a matter of fact, I mean, I put this in the story, but a num- number of other Alden newspapers, people like n- not just describe like poor working conditions, like, oh, I'm getting asked to do seven stories, but it's like there's rats and mildew and there's no hot water in the bathroom. And it's like, you know, we have breathing problems because they moved our office near a plant and stuff. And it's like, it's actually like, there's actually, uh, you know, sort of like working hazards too.
1: <laughs> well, one of the things I think you drive home to with the piece and I, it, is that the institution of this, that, that we, we all need to keep in mind that, like it or hate it, the UT was an institution in town that provided to some extent a, a public service. Yeah. And as you described back it, this is the first time now since they unloaded what printing presses into old town and what what was it 1840 or something 18, six, 1868 okay yeah. yeah 1868 they unloaded printing presses and and there was a headquarters for the newspaper or newspapers in San Diego from that moment until just this year where there is no headquarters for a local daily newspaper, anywhere they're they're working online. All remote workers. All remote. We have an office.
3: Yeah, <laughs> we have 13, 14 employees. We have an. We have a headquarters. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say you're you're real behind, really behind the times. I know, right? <laughs> we, uh, but I think what's what more. Th- that's a symbol of what is bigger, which is that this institution and its future cannot be sort of counted on any longer. I and I think that what what. What' I've, the story I've been trying to tell for a long time is like there's newspapers did a public service in the sense that they had they, they had this, this uh, product and it, it was churning out so much wealth through its advertising model, that it could foster and incubate this public service alongside of it. And as that, that engine sort of changed and, and it was and was ultimately disrupted so completely by the internet, at that point that that incubation that cultivation of the public service just withered away and we were lucky it was just like this historic anomaly is is this like convenience that we had that that public service as flawed as it was as unrepresented as it was as unrepresentative as, as it was as just you know whatever problems and flaws it had it was a public service that was being delivered and we were kind of like it was just this this weird just
3: people being there like whether the press is doing a good job or not when they're there when they're going to meetings that alone counts for an immense amount and but you know i think like something that happened over the course of that hundred years you're talking about like the press became like so professionalized as an institution it went from being this like blue collar enterprise where people knew what it was and knew what it was about and then it got crankitized eventually <laughs> to the point that it was this view from nowhere stuff and and as dire as this all is like this is how we reinvent ourselves to become more relevant
1: well and that's what i was going to yeah that at we were providing through this sort of historic accident this service and it became, as you said, like so professional and, and, and contained in that world. And now we're being challenged to like figure out how to deliver that service directly as opposed to through some alternate commercial activity that was going on. And I, I think it gets back to the the last point in your in your piece and the different parts where you explored all these different ways that other people were thinking about delivering it directly, whether it's Arizona State or a nonprofit or whatever. But that that's the challenge we're all left with is are we going to be able to build an institution or institutions that can deliver that public service directly, maybe more efficiently, and maybe with better sort of foundational uh, priorities and principles uh, going forward, or do we, do we just fail and nobody knows what's going on?
3: <laughs> yeah.
4: Back to the town you know,
1: caller dice. Yeah.
4: yeah. You know, I, Scott, we started off the conversation and like, this is a real throwback uh, week for me. Um, with the Scooby-Doo outfit and being back on the show. Like, I, you know, I was also taken back to, like, these, you know, I, the speech you just gave, you know, you and I used to give in meetings to funders, like, 15 years ago. And the whole idea was, like, you know, the whole baseline was I- journalism is in, at the core of public service. It used to get provided by the market. But now the market's not providing it, and so we have to get used to people paying for it in another way? And how do we pay for public services that are not provided by the market? Largely through philanthropy, right? And so what, what I was driven home to me was, you know, when, when Burnham went and met with some of these funders, they said, oh no, I don't fund, that's not something I fund. I fund medical research and education and everything like that. And it, it just speaks to the fact that like, we are still as a community and a society pretty far behind the curve on what's happening in that, in that 15 years. That newspaper has shrunk to be, you know, one. F- the newsroom is one fifth of its size. But but we haven't actually caught up to the fact that like we are going to have to fund this through philanthropy. And the the thing that gives me like hope is that we actually know how to fund things through philanthropy. Like as I put in the story, like San Diego knows how to do that. Ninety million dollars a year uh, uh, go to the Symphony uh, Association. Like they, they have revenues of ninety million dollars a year you know, the museums have 30 million, like, uh, you know, what is, vo- what's voice's budget? 2 million. It's two a, and a half? it's
1: a solid 2 million. Solid <laughs> is it a solid? It's not- <laughs> <laughs> it, is a ro- it is a robust, Shut up, Will. It, is, it is a
4: robust, 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 well-earned $2 million. But like, but, but, and the other point I make is that like, and this is the point that you and I used to try to make, and clearly we haven't been successful, but maybe we can now with this staring us in the face is that like, is uh, you know if you if you care about all these other things, you know if we don't have journalism, like all those things go to waste, yeah. right? Like if we don't have uh, journalists covering the school board, then it just got more opaque, it got less responsive and less accountable. If we don't have journalists covering the city, guess what? It's way easier for a parks or beach. Uh, you know, somebody in charge of parks or beaches or playgrounds or whatever to be corrupt, and so it's 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 shown that where newspapers close, people vote less, and where people where newspapers don't exist or aren't strong, people don't know their neighbors as well, and so like there's a whole cascading effect here on on San Diego of this newspaper. And I think like the key is, is like, is, you know, we do, you know, we do know people are stepping up and starting to fund things, but like, can they do it in time before like the whole enterprise is just gone? Cause you know, I'll get off my soapbox in a second, but like, we're also, we're also in a moment where like the actual real democracy is a threat in the United States. And those, the, the, the erosion of local news is directly uh, a part of that story as well.
1: Uh, we believe, uh, in telling a story and, and, and a shared story in San Diego of, uh, shared facts, common facts, so we can all understand each other better. And, um, and that was a great story. I appreciate you put, uh, producing it for our site. You are now the investigative editor for Cal matters, our partners up there. Congratulations. Um, I look forward to, uh, you revealing some things and holding some people accountable, huh?
4: Hey, thanks, man. It was fun to do this story for voice and fun to be back on the show.
1: All right. Take care. All right. Bye. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us.
0: Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD.
1: So there's a story this broke, that broke this week. The mayor's office and city staff want to change the plan, the community plan for Hillcrest, allow uh, taller buildings, allow um, uh, maybe some one-way streets, uh, try to traffic calm while also allowing more people to live there, more infrastructure, a little LGBTQ historic, historic district. district, all kinds of interesting things. But uh, one of the, the big takeaway um, uh, for <laughs> the skyscrapers <laughs> for a lot of people was that they were going to allow uh 30 foot or 30 stories excuse me buildings and <laughs> It's,
2: a lot of people are very worried about that. It looked like a very futuristic building, too. It was yeah. opaque and the, red. And, and, NBC, and, you know.
1: I don't know where they got this. They did a, a rendering of what a, a tower of sorts would look like in Hillcrest. And it's just this big, red... like 30-story
3: Jolly Rancher. Yeah, it's like, like <laughs> Rancher or, or lightsaber. Or lightsaber.
1: Yeah. And, it's so classic. Every once in a while, so there's renderings where people want to sell you on something, and then there's renderings where people just try to demonstrate what something might look like, and those are two different things, and they're very different. There's like the one that came out about the old town, the Spay War, uh, the Nav War Center, and it was going to be these buildings, and they were, gonna, and it was just these like gray blocks that were like blocking <laughs> everybody's like views and everything. It was like engineered to to generate antipathy toward their project
2: so you're describing like an like an agit prop rendering yeah
1: and so so yeah so this one uh is is these these towers sticking out now at the heart of this is of course this ongoing debate and tension about do we allow growth in certain areas uh, allow people to live closer together is there enough infrastructure to support people living more densely in places like Hillcrest you know the suburban area of Hillcrest or not um, or and and this this debate will go on now mayor Kevin Faulkner and city council in 2020 passed the complete communities plan which allows you uh, developers to build much bigger buildings than they might normally be allowed in some of these zoning areas if it's close to transit and if they, Add affordable units to the building on site. Now you did a story this week, uh, Will Huntsbury, about a change that is now being proposed for that. Describe what what uh, what the change would mean.
3: Yeah, it's a really interesting change, and I was surprised nobody had covered it. Re our last discussion of the the UT, this just kind of slipped by unnoticed to the press, but uh, the idea is that we water down that requirement and we no longer require developers to build the affordable units on the site themselves to the same standard those market rate units will be built. We allow them to build them off-site and potentially in poorer neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So some people really don't like that.
1: Yeah, so uh, that, that was an incredible comment from Councilman... Joe Lacava. so he represents La Jolla, some of these other areas. and uh, I think kind of out of character for, for yeah. a stereotype for that for that sort of representative was like, you know how can you consider it? So the idea is that if you're required to build affordable housing in those in those buildings, it would support sort of economic diversity, right. It would keep maybe some uh, uh, lower income folks who have been able to live there for now, maybe keep some of their spots. Uh, and he was like, you know, if you support allowing people to build their affordable units elsewhere, you're, you're harking back to a time when we used to not allow people of color to live in areas like, right. Redlining
3: all these things.
2: Like he came out so fierce on it. And I'd actually never heard the phrase poor doors. That was an interesting turn of phrase.
1: Well, there was that, that project downtown where it was notorious because they'd, they'd created an entrance. Uh, for the, um, or they designed an entrance for you know the the, the people oh, who live there. Oh, And then they 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 had a different entrance got for it. the affordable housing one. So and that's that's that concept. Yeah, interesting. But I think they got rid of that. That, that hmm. was changed.
2: And and I, I I will just agree. I mean, that, I I Lacava <laughs> La is not somebody who generally is very fiery up there from the podium, but that those comments were clearly aimed at at you know, this concept of moving these affordable units outside of of these buildings. And in, in a way that was, that was fiery. I mean, shoot. Yeah.
1: Now I, the argument for it is that it is, it is already so expensive to build these affordable units that we're always hearing these stories about 700, 800, 900, a million dollars per unit to build these affordable housing units. If you require that they be built on these these this most expensive of uh land then you're just adding to that and it'll be harder for these developers to provide both the normal market supply and the affordable supply both and so we would be hurting ourselves unless we allow people uh to to fulfill that responsibility in other places so that's that's the other side of this and so i think it's it's a uh, that's what they're the, the kind of principle they have to decide between. Right.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's the argument that now if if they do this, it'll free up developers to market right. developers can build market rate houses, which is what they're good at and then they can subcontract the affordable units to affordable developers which is what they're good at they can access federal funds to do that and that that all makes sense that it could lead to more units what you have not seen in this discussion at all though is like how well is complete communities right working right now because like we said, complete communities was ushered in in 2020. It allowed for these massive density bonuses if you built affordable units on site, and people have been utilizing it. Mm-hmm. So like it's unclear to me if it's not working or if it's just something like developers just want this cuz it, it clearly is going to make developers' lives easier. Mm-hmm. We can say that unequivocally. What we don't know is like how well complete communities is working. As of right this moment, you know, in 2022, KPBS analyzed it and like 800 units had been permitted with 200 of them affordable. So, you know, we could have a debate about whether that's working or not, but it it was spurring development as it was.
2: Yeah. Is there a sort of consensus Yimby view about all of this change?
3: I don't know if there's a consensus view. The people I've talked, I've talked to a lot of people on background involved in city politics around this and, um, A lot of them are like, you know, I can see the argument for it because they want more houses because we desperately need more houses. The vacancy rate of rental units is incredibly low. It's awful out there to try to get an apartment. Way more people are becoming homeless and we're getting out of homelessness. Like we do desperately need the units, but like we also need fair housing policies. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? You know. The developers say, well, this changes the margins so we can build more. Well, I mean, we could just not charge taxes and that would also like change the margins so they could do it, you know? So there, it's a balance between like fair housing principles and getting more housing. Mm -hmm. Well,
1: you can check out uh, that story. Uh, Great uh, little dip into housing policy. Thank you. Appreciate that while you pursue some other stuff. Um, And more, VoiceSanDiego.org. Thanks guys. It was good.
2: That was awesome. Yeah, not so bad. You did pretty good today, Scott. Thanks, Jake.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this part of San Diego that is pursuing that public service of local journalism and accountability. And you can support that always at org slash donate. That's voicesandiego.org slash donate. Subscribe to The Morning Report to keep up with everything we're following in local news and our latest stories. You can see that and our full lineup of newsletters at vosd.org slash newsletters. That's vosd.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Chief at Voice San Diego. Will Huntsberry's is our senior investigative reporter. Jacob McQuinnies, our education reporter. And Nate Johns, our producer, our technician on staff and in studio this week. Uh, is Adam Greenfield. Thank you so much, Adam. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.